Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. The Writers Guild considering a new proposal from motion picture and TV producers. Meanwhile, another museum goes union. And today on the show, the latest from the Ohio Federation of Teachers and the Insulators. That would be Local 45 in Toledo, Ohio. Welcome to the Tuesday, August 15th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Melissa Cropper will be our first guest on the show today. She is president of the Ohio Federation of Teachers, oh.aft.org, and she's got a lot to report on today. Number one, the victory on issue one. It was last Tuesday, a week ago today, August 8th, when Ohio voters voted to reject an anti worker, anti democracy constitutional amendment that would have made future amendments much harder to pass by requiring a certain amount of petition signatures from all 88 counties right now it's 44 counties half that amount and requiring a 60 percent majority vote to pass current law is 50 percent plus one turns out that a bipartisan keyword there bipartisan coalition of union members voting rights and democracy supporters community leaders and that includes four former Ohio governors, and five former Ohio attorney generals all joining together to defeat the amendment. And uh, Melissa's going to talk about that. Melissa, by the way, also serves as secretary-treasurer of the Ohio AFL-CIO. Then we're going to talk about organizing. The OFT Central Ohio Library Organizing continues to move forward on uh, last Thursday. August 10th, librarians and library workers at Pinkerton Public Library went public with their union organizing campaign. Turns out that more than 70% of eligible employees signed union cards. And this, by the way, is the third Central Ohio library system that has organized with the OFT since uh, 2001. So we'll talk about that. And we're also going to touch on a webinar that the OFT is hosting. This is going to be two weeks from tomorrow. Mark this on your calendar if you want to join in. It's Wednesday, August 30th. And that's going to be with the president of the American Library Association, who we featured on this show yesterday. Emily Drabinsky is going to be on that Zoom call with a panel of union library workers. The webinar titled Defending intellectual freedom library workers on the front line if you missed the show yesterday we talked about what's going on with the libraries around the country and that's uh, awfpodcast.com we'll talk more about that with uh, melissa because she comes from library science and lastly school board elections so important here there's a lot of local school districts that will be holding school board elections this fall and uh, enter some extreme politicians that have been attacking education policy. So Melissa says it's more important than ever that local school board members have a very 
and I mean a very strong background in education and a commitment to quality local public schools. And uh, one example is Lisa Batten. Lisa is an OFT member in the New Lebanon Federation of Teachers, and she's running for a school board seat in the Valley View Local School District. That's in Montgomery County in southern Ohio. So we'll talk about that and more with Melissa Cropper. Our second guest on the show is Ryan Webb, and Ryan is in charge of the uh, Joint Apprenticeship and Training Committee, which is a labor management collaboration. And uh, he's with Insulators Local 45. Website is insulatorslocal45.com. They're based in Toledo, Ohio. And he's going to talk about training and providing the highest skilled insulation personnel for their clients. And um, Local 45 and its affiliates and sponsors are constantly developing and pioneering new programs to assist in delivering the necessary education to keep keep the union members strides above their competition. Yeah, that's right. You want the proper skills and you get that with a union apprenticeship program. And we'll talk about that. Why union and uh, the importance of the benefits, the wages, so on and so forth. So uh, Ryan Webb will be our second guest right here on the show. Now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management, offering fixed income real estate equity investment options to clients nationwide. We're talking $17 billion in assets under advisement, serving the needs of Taft-Hartley funds, corporations, public funds, endowments, foundations, as well as religious organizations. You can find more at boydwaterson.com. The Writers Guild of America, the WGA, said that it was considering a new proposal that the union received from the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the AMPTP, marking the resumption of negotiations between the two entities since the talk stalled back on May 1st. That's how long this has been going on. There's a uh, comment here from the WGA. They wrote in a memo, your negotiating committee received a counterproposal from the Alliance today. We will evaluate their offer. And after deliberation, go back to them with the WGA's response. That should be probably next week. Now, the Writers Guild had previously stated that the Alliance had to provide a counterproposal that addressed all the union's key concerns as well as issues arising from the strike, in order for those talks to continue. Meanwhile, the, uh, the alliance has insisted that any new deal must match the one reached with the Directors Guild back in June. As we reported last week, the union's major points of disagreement include minimum employment levels for writers' rooms, writers' entitlements, to streaming residuals, overall writer's pay, and the use of artificial intelligence. Now, the Guild's memo did not disclose any details on the latest offer, but it urges members to continue to show up to the picket lines. Sometimes more progress can be made in negotiations when they are conducted without a blow-by-blow description of the moves on each side and a subsequent public dissection of the meaning of those moves. That's a statement from the Writers Guild. 
They went on to say that will be our approach, at least for the time being, until there is something of significance to report. I think that's a smart way to proceed on this. On Saturday, Lorena Gonzalez, the executive secretary, treasurer, and chief officer of the California Labor Federation of the AFL-CIO, said it was shameful that striking SAG-AFTRA and WGA, Writers Guild Workers in California, are not eligible for unemployment insurance in their state. I didn't realize that. Meanwhile, their counterparts in New York and New Jersey are, in fact, eligible to receive $504 a week and $830 a week, respectively, for up to 26 weeks while on strike. Workers in California are regarded as having left their job voluntarily, even if they voted against a strike authorization. Up and down the state, we don't want a group of workers, especially the massive number of workers we have out on strike now, to be economically insecure because they're being forced to go out on strike, said Gonzalez. It's a big gap that our lawmakers need to look at as a way that they can support striking workers because the employers have already paid into this. And let's be clear, these workers have earned unemployment insurance. So if you lose your job, you're supposed to be able to access unemployment insurance. This should not be something different. So... That's surprising to me. California, pretty progressive state, but they did not include that, the unemployment insurance for workers going out on strike. And here's some good news. After more than two years of bargaining, the Guggenheim Museum reached an agreement with its workers' union last week. The contract, which goes into effect immediately, gives workers an average salary increase of 11% over two and a half years. It also offers improved health and retirement benefits and just cause employment protections. Now, with this contract, the Guggenheim workers join a cohort of unionized museum curators, conservators, and other employees, including those at the Whitney Museum and the New Museum in the state of New York. We're seeing a lot of organizing at museums all around the country. And a lot of this had to do with what happened at the pandemic. Many of those museums were shut down. The workers were uh, left out in the cold. And uh, we got to give a salute here to one of the contributors over the years to America's workforce. That would be uh, Dave Jameson of the Huff Post, formerly the Huffington Post. Dave, who was on the show just a couple of weeks ago, talking about a series that he did called The Persuaders a five-part series on the union avoidance industry. Well, Dave won the August Sydney Award for one of those installments inside corporate America's favorite union-busting firm. That firm is the Labor Relations Institute. They hook up anti-union employers with union avoidance consultants. And some of their clients... Includes companies like Cisco, Hershey, and Dollar General. Employers disclosed $10 million in payments to the Labor Relations Institute between 2020 and 2022. But Dave pointed out the true figure may be much higher as many companies fail to report what they're spending to bus unions. 
said, Dave, I've come across the Labor Relations Institute and other firms like it many times while reporting on organizing campaigns. The firms and their consultants usually get a brief mention and story, so I wanted to write something deeper on them. Most persuaders, as the anti-union consultants are called, do not discuss their work with journalists. So here's what Dave did. He pieced together the practices of the Labor Relations Institute by filing numerous freedom of information requests with the National Labor Relations Board. In the late 90s, mind you, the LRI ran afoul of regulators for paying federal employees for insider information about union drives. Today, their subcontractors charge hundreds of dollars an hour to disrupt organizing campaigns. That's a heck of a series. So congratulations to Dave Jameson of the Huffington Post winning the August Sydney Award. The Sydney Hillman Foundation honors excellence in journalism in services of the common good. They have a number of judges, and they award this each month, and then they have a, a recipient for the entire year so. Good news there for uh, Dave Jameson. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with Melissa Cropper on behalf of the Ohio Federation of Teachers. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit SurveyAndBallotSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without iron workers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained iron workers and 20,000 apprentices, the Iron Workers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Iron Workers, the sky's the limit. America his workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. Now, back to America's workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or X, however you want to call the new branding of Twitter. That would be awfpodcast.com, awfpodcast.com. All right, let's go to Columbus, Ohio. 
Welcome one of our longtime contributors, Melissa Cropper, who is president of the Ohio Federation of Teachers, oh.aft.org. We've got some good news to report on a win at the polls, more organizing, and school board races, and a candidate that should be elected in southern Ohio. Melissa Cropper, it was a week ago today, we saw 57% of Ohioans saying no. No way. Issue one. And I know you were in the middle of this campaign. I, I can only imagine you're still kind of celebrating about this uh, victory last week. How How's everybody feeling in uh, central Ohio right now because of the defeat of issue one, Melissa? Hey, feeling really, really fantastic. I'll, I'll share with you a little personal story. You know, on election night, our national president, Randy Weingarten, called me and said, I just really wanted to hear your voice because I wanted to hear what you sound like when you get a victory. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that had so, to make yeah. you feel really good. It felt great. And, you know, it, it was a it was a huge win for the people of Ohio, and it just shows that when we all work together in solidarity, when we pull together, we can we can make good things happen. And we yeah. did it that night, and we're already pivoting to you know, the next thing. I mean, there, there's still a lot, of, a lot of big issues ahead of us, a lot of big elections ahead of us. But now we've got this momentum behind us. We know that we can do this. And I think we're all excited about the potential for, for what can happen next. You know, Melissa, I felt that this was going to go down. But 57 percent, did you feel that it was going to be that overwhelming on this campaign? What's, what's your take on that? Well, you know, at, at the beginning, yes, I was pretty confident that we were going to defeat this soundly. As it got closer and closer, I, I got a little bit more nervous. I think that's just, you know, a, a byproduct of living in Ohio and, you know, and experiencing some, some really disappointing losses over the past few years. So I, I was concerned with the money they're putting in at the end and you know, all the signs I'm seeing as we travel across Ohio, there are more and more yes signs popping up. So I was actually pleasantly surprised that it ended up being 57%. I think that, again, just goes to show that um, that we're a very gerrymandered state and that when we talk about issues and we focus in on issues, the people of the state really aren't, you know, really not extreme right wing like our legislature seems to be. But we're people who come together on issues and and stand up for democracy and stand up for right, what's right for workers and what's right for the uh, average Ohioan. You know, what's interesting, too, some of the polling data shows in some counties that were traditionally Republican counties voted no on issue one. I mean, they mm-hmm. they kind of saw through the BS that was portrayed on this whole thing. So it's good that uh, people really took a deep dive into this issue and realized uh, what was going on. So it is certainly right. good news. And I had a conversation uh, last week, by the way, with uh, Tim Berga president of the Ohio AFL-CIO, and I told him that, you know, as a taxpayer, I'm pretty upset because they used, what, $20 million of our tax money to put this campaign on, which wasn't supposed to happen in August because they banned August elections. Because they banned it, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) So I I told him I figured it out. You know, there were 88 lawmakers altogether in the the House and the Senate that voted to put this on the ballot. And uh, I figured it out. It's about $227,000 each. I want to send an invoice to each one of them and tell them to repay that money to the Ohio Treasury because it's shameful that they it wasted is, it is shameful and it, and it's really it's really disgusting when we think about um all the needs that go unmet in our state 
and the fact that $20 million of state money is put in that, and that doesn't even count all the other money that went in from other avenues and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but to hold a special election when they just literally, I mean, April 7th, the ban on August the 7th, August elections went into effect, and they turned right around a few weeks later and put something on the ballot. And I think that's what really turned, that was one of the things that really, I think, upset a lot of people, the hypocrisy in that and the, the mm-hmm. sneakiness of it. Um, I think that's one thing that really motivated people to come out and vote. And this is a good governance issue. And again, I think people of Ohio value good governance and, and value their right to be able to go to the ballot and, and make decisions. And, you know, I, I hope that, that some people learned a lesson from that. But if you listen to, you know, Senator Huffman and some other people out there, I don't think they did learn a lesson. So no. we're going to have to we're going to have to continue showing up to vote. You know, I'll hold up like Clark County just so people know how important it is to vote. If you look at the different counties, Clark County, this was defeated by one vote. Um, so, again, we're always telling people your vote matters and people don't always uh, believe it. But one vote makes a difference in places, and we, it's highly, highly important every election that we go up, go out and stand up and make sure that we're heard because we have people here who don't want to listen. Well, they were counting on a low turnout, and that certainly did not happen, not at all. In fact, the turnout in Geauga County, which is a conservative county, it was the highest in the state at 52%. That's like, wow, That's wow. wow. Well, a 38% turnout in, a, in an August election where traditionally you get about a 6% turnout, 38% turnout. And again, that's a testament to all the work that people did um, to call their friends, neighbors, family, and everybody and make them aware of this issue and, and turn people out. I know labor did a lot of work, and it wasn't just labor, it's a coalition of a lot of people, but speaking from where I'm coming from, you know, labor spent a lot of time on doors. Uh, writing postcards, making phone calls, talking to family members and friends. And that's what it takes, again, in every single election. That's what it's going to take to turn this uh, turn this state around and put us back mm-hmm. on the right track. Boots on the ground. That's what we say. Boots on the ground. Well, a win at the polls and also more organizing activity. Talk to me about what's happening at the uh, Pinkerton Public Library. Good story here. Right. You know, we continue to uh, focus on organizing libraries in central Ohio. I mean, we're, we're organizing more than libraries, but that's been one of our primary focuses. Um, you know, over the past uh, year plus, we have picked up Worthington Public Library, Grandview Heights Public Library. And just this week, we had Pickerington Public Library. Um, more than 70% of their employees signed union cards, so they want to form a union. So they you know, turned their signatures into the administration the other day and announced that they're going public. They want a union, so we're starting that process of getting a union there also. So it, it's, um, it, it's fantastic work. This is the kind of work that keeps us energized. Uh, this is what lets us know that that we're on the right track with what we're doing when people say they want to form a union and that they want to be part of the Ohio Federation of Teachers, part of the Ohio AFL-CIO, um, and we're, we're here to make that happen. So we're really excited about this, very, very excited about this. Well, you should be. And uh, thank you for the contact information for Emily Drabinsky. We had her on the show yesterday. Emily is the president of the American Library Association. And, again, you can access that uh, that interview at awfpodcast.com. She was really, really good. And I guess this is all 
to promote this webinar coming up. Maybe you could speak to that. It's uh, Defending Intellectual Freedom that you're doing with uh, Emily. Can you get us some details on that? Yes, yeah. As you said, Emily is the president of the American Library Association. And one of our organizers here on staff was a librarian at Worthington Public Library, so had connections to Emily and connected us with her. And, of course, we've got a lot in common, not, because we not only represent public libraries, but we you know, represent school librarians also. And, again, over the past year, two years, we've seen more and more attacks you know, happen on libraries and more and more attempts at censorship happening. So we wanted to hold a webinar for our, all our libraries in every avenue, including you know, AAUP is part of the um, American Federation of Teachers now, and including them in there also. So at every level, we're working with our librarians to help them overcome these censorship challenges and making the public aware of what's happening in our school libraries, what's happening in our public libraries, what's happening in our higher ed libraries, um, so we can all band together and, and, again, support the right for people to have information without censorship happening. Emily talked about their toolkit that they have at the American Library Association. You can access that at ALA.org, ALA.org. And uh, it's to help uh, those in local communities that uh, their, their libraries are being attacked, and it's working. It really is working. So this webinar, this is going to be on uh, – the 30th of this month, which is two weeks from tomorrow. And if you go to the uh, OFT website, oft-aft.org, there's a link to the webinar. So those of you that are working in libraries, want to learn more about this, definitely you can access there. All right, let's move on to school board elections. Okay. School board elections used to be kind of quiet. Nobody knew anything. Boy, that has changed over the years. And and you know, Emily said this on the show. It's a vocal minority. It's a few people, a vocal minority that seems to get the majority of the news because how vocal they are. Why don't you explain what's going on here, Melissa? Well, there again, there are groups out there who are – making our school grounds uh, political fields. And they're showing up at our school board meetings. Uh, they're trying to change policy at the state level to, to uh, ban books, to limit what we can teach in our classrooms, um, to spread this message that uh, teachers are grooming students or indoctrinating students. And this just isn't happening. And like you said, like Emily said, this is a vocal minority, but but they've made it their goal to disrupt school board meetings and to run for school board seats and win school board meet, um, seats so that they can have uh, spread their right-wing rhetoric into our classrooms. So it's really important that we uh, have people run for school board seats, that we have people on school boards who support public education, who support our teachers, who support the rights of students to have an honest education. And so we are highly um, seeking and recruiting people to run for those seats. Uh, we have one of our members, uh, Lisa Batten, who's actually the president of our union at New Lebanon Schools in the Dayton area. Uh, she was actually recruited by people in the town where she lives, which is Valley View, to run for the school board there. So we're really, really excited that she has stepped up and said, yeah, I'll take on this extra work. Um, because, again, it, it is so critical that we actually have people, have someone like her who's sitting in a school board seat who has 
very firsthand knowledge of what goes on in our classrooms and what needs to happen in our classrooms and be willing to lend her voice to setting the policy for that school district. So this is a pushback against groups like uh, Moms for Liberty and other groups that you hear out there who are actively disrupting school board meetings and causing problems in our classrooms. Now, does Lisa have a very contentious opponent in that race in uh, Montgomery County? She has. She is running with an incumbent. Um, the incumbent on the board uh, has had gone head to head with the school board president, who is an extreme right wingist, and who is again spreading all the, all this. Um, this false rhetoric about what's happening in our classrooms and has on his website openly attacked Lisa and her and the person running with her. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the uh, things he holds against her is that she is union and that she has a connection to Randy Weingarten. And of course you and I know that Randy Weingarten is one of the biggest defenders and promoters of public education in the world. Um, so being attached to her is, is not something to be ashamed of or to, be, or to run away from. It's something to be very proud of that, uh, we, ha- that we have resources from every level to be able to uh, increase literacy in our classrooms, to uh, give students an honest education, and to move our, our children ahead on a, on a good path. So yes, she's she got, she got people who are actively opposing her in a very negative way, but we feel like her positive message and her experience in the classroom uh, make her a great candidate, and, will, and I think people will see that and vote for her, hopefully. Absolutely. Randy Weingart, big proponent of public schools, but also deemed the most dangerous person in the world (laughs) from, from, what was it, Mike Pompeo, who uh, was a former Secretary of State. More dangerous than Vladimir Putin. How about that one? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the world we live in today. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Melissa Cropper, President of the Ohio Federation of Teachers, also Secretary-Treasurer of the Ohio AFL-CIO. You can find more at oh.aft.org. You take care, stay safe, stay strong, and enjoy your upcoming Labor Day holiday. You work hard for it, okay? Thank you. You too. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with the Insulators, Local 45 in Toledo, Ohio. Back in a few. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the U.S., US, Canada, Canada, and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. Union members need to be heard. 
Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SPS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And don't forget, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. You can find more at ulagency.org. We're having a bit of difficulty uh, lining up with Ryan Webb of the Insulators. That would be Local 45 out of Toledo, Ohio. He heads the uh, Joint Apprenticeship and Training Committee, JATC, which is a labor management collaboration. The Heat and Frost Insulators are uh, big sponsors here on America's Workforce. In the meantime, got a couple of stories I want to run down. The state governments of Illinois and New Jersey have recently passed measures to protect the safety and rights of temp workers who are hired by staffing agencies and placed at third-party employers. These staffing agencies often hire people who would otherwise have difficulty finding work, such as immigrant workers, undocumented workers, and formerly incarcerated workers. Now, these workers, mind you, are vulnerable to exploitation and abuse, things like wage theft, unsafe working conditions, because they have reason to fear retaliation for self-advocacy. The new laws mandate that workers hired through staffing agencies receive the same pay and legal protections as workers in the same jobs who are employed directly by firms. Governor Phil Murphy signed the New Jersey measure into law in February, and it went into effect last Saturday. Governor J.B. Pritzker signed the Illinois measure into law on Friday. Now, the Worker Center Make the Road New Jersey actually spearheaded advocacy for the New Jersey law, which came to light in part last year when a van transporting temporary workers crashed, killing four workers and injuring eight others. In addition to provisions intended to ensure pay equity, regulate pay deductions, prohibit restrictions on permanent employment, and prevent retaliation, the new law holds staffing agencies responsible for the drivers they use to transport workers. Now, Illinois' version of the law, in addition to mandating pay equity, gives temp workers the right to refuse a work placement due to a labor dispute involving the firm. Importantly, though, Illinois' pay equity provision only applies to temp workers once they have worked at a third-party firm for more than 90 calendar days. The staffing agency industry has strongly opposed the New Jersey law. In contrast, the industry has remained officially neutral with regard to the law in Illinois. So some help there for temporary workers who... (laughs) for many, many years and decades, have been uh, exploited on the job. The uh, Sixth Circuit upheld a federal judge's injunction 
compelling Starbucks to rehire five of seven pro-union workers fired at a Memphis, Tennessee store, agreeing that the firings had a high likelihood of chilling organizing activity. Now, the firing goes back to February of last year, 2022, and the firing was called the Memphis 7. Five members of the store's six-person organizing committee and two outspoken union supporters. This was part of an early chapter in Starbucks' dirty war against unions. Well, last summer, a district court judge found that the store's organizing drive was at risk of irreparable harm without the rehiring of the workers. In affirming the judge's finding, the panel noted the actual evidence of the chill resulting from the company's anti-union campaign. Testimony in the record showed that workers at the Memphis store stopped wearing union pins and discussing union matters after the firing. Workers at a Jackson, Tennessee store were hesitant to organize after Starbucks posted a notice at their store detailing the discharges in Memphis. And then... A manager at a Florida store suggested to workers that unionization would lead to a response from Starbucks similar to the one in Memphis. Well, as such, the panel reasoned a temporary injunction was necessary, quote, to preserve the status quo pending completion of the board's proceedings, end of quote. Well, the workers were rehired last fall after the store ultimately voted to unionize by a vote of 11 to 3. Starbucks maintains that the evidence was not sufficient to support injunctive relief and said the company is exploring all options for further legal review. Boy, that company just does not give up. Does not give up. Saying 28 million U.S. workers would get a pay raise. Senator Bernie Sanders and 29 other senators introduced legislation to raise the federal minimum wage to $17 an hour by 2028 and entirely, entirely eliminate the so-called tip minimum wage, raising those workers to minimum wage status over seven years. The measure builds on the long fight for 15 campaign. Now get this, the federal minimum wage has been $7.00 and 25 cents an hour since 2009. And at least 23 states, plus dozens of cities, tired of waiting for Congress to act, they raise minimum wages on their own. In some red states, I might add. In others, Alabama is a prime example. The state minimum wage, well, guess what? It's still 725. And when blue cities raise minimums, The Republican state legislative majorities repealed their right to do so. That's a common practice right now. And uh, we talked about this with the Texas AFL-CIO, not with minimum wage increases, but with the temporary 10-minute rest breaks because of the heat index. And they said, well, the cities can't do this because it's not uniform through the state of Texas. So they repealed what they did. I believe it was austin and in Dallas. By the way, that law in Texas goes into effect September 1st. Getting back to the story with uh, raising the minimum wage, Sanders called the current federal minimum wage a starvation wage. Two years ago, Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO, in a Labor Day in the pulpit address called it pathetic. It must be raised to a living wage, at least 17 bucks an hour, Sanders declared in the year. 2023, a job should lift you out of poverty, not keep you in it.
At a time of massive income and wealth inequality and record-breaking corporate profits, we can no longer tolerate millions of workers being unable to feed their families because they're working for totally inadequate wages. Congress can no longer ignore the needs of the working class of this country. It's time to act now. Turns out that the AFL-CIO asked me, the American Federation of Teachers, the Communication Workers, Jobs with Justice, the Domestic Workers Alliance, National Education Association, Restaurant Opportunities Center, the Service Employees, the Steelworkers, and Workers Circle. That's a new one. Promptly endorsed the legislation, along with the National Employment Law Project and the National Partnership for Women and Families and the Economic Policy Institute. Sanders' legislation would immediately raise the federal minimum wage to $9.50 hourly, then raise it in steps to $17 an hour in 2028. After that, it would grow percentage-wise, with the growth in medium wages for the entire workforce. The $17 minimum wage by 2028, this is according to the Economic Policy Institute, that would generate $86 billion in higher wages for workers and would also benefit communities across the country because underpaid workers spend much of their extra earnings This injection of wages will help stimulate the economy and spur greater business activity as well as job growth. Low wages hurt all workers and are particularly harmful to black workers and other workers of color, especially women of color, who make up a disproportionate share of workers who are severely underpaid. This is the result of structural racism and sexism with an economic system rooted in slavery, in which these workers continue to be shunted into the most underpaid jobs. This is all coming from the Economic Policy Institute. Now, the tipped minimum wage, that's been stuck at $2.13 per hour since 1991. And that's pretty much thanks to corporate lobbies, mainly the National Restaurant Association, whose members hold the distinction being by far the lowest-paying sector of the U.S. economy. Now, bosses are supposed to make up the difference between the $2.13 and the state, federal, local minimum wage, but how many times does that happen? Not too often. Other tipped minimum workers include bellhops, cabbies, and domestic workers. Turns out that 60%, so that's what, three out of five of U.S. Minimum wage workers are, in fact, adult women, according to the National Employment Law Project. That makes the common corporate claim that a minimum wage hike benefits mostly high schoolers working summer jobs and outright live. In a statement, the restaurant lobby said its members, in so many words, cannot afford to raise their workers' pay. Congressional Republicans, who kowtow to corporate interests, including opposing raising the minimum wage, are silent so far on Bernie Sanders' proposal. All right, we're going to take a quick break. More to come on America's Workforce right after this. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Layuna to keep America running. 
Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit SurveyAndBallotSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Iron Workers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. And I keep saying this. If you like a show, share that show. Because it's important we spread the good word of what happens on America's Workforce. This show has been around for 30 years. I've been hosting it now for 25 of those years. And six months ago, maybe seven months ago, we were in the top 15% of all podcasts. We started podcasting in June of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. And like I said, six months ago, we were in the top 15%. We're now in the top 5% of all podcasts. We're heard pretty much across the entire United States and nine of 12 provinces in Canada. Ohio, we're based in Ohio. Still our number one state, but we're picking up a whole lot in the southern states, the right-to-work states. And that just tells me that they want to know what's going on with unions. And there's a lot of organizing going on, especially in Alabama. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, officially has a Democratic majority as of this week. Calpena Kodigal was sworn in as Commissioner Kodigal, formerly an employment and civil rights attorney at Cohen, Milstein, Sellers, and Toll, based in Washington, D.C., was narrowly confirmed last month on a vote of 49 to 47. Her addition to the commission promises to break a partisan deadlock and allow Democrats to 
ramp up the agency's action. Also, the EEOC has settled a first-of-its-kind artificial intelligence discrimination lawsuit against a tutoring company that allegedly programmed its recruitment software to reject older applicants, mind you. The joint notice of settlement filed in the Eastern District of New York stipulates that the company will pay $365,000 to the 200-plus applicants rejected due to their age in the specified time frame and be enjoined from using age or sex as a disqualifier. By the way, this is kind of historic. It's the first AI, artificial intelligence discrimination lawsuit, that the EEOC has ever brought. I would imagine there will be more. There will be more. Speaking of which, artificial intelligence has become a high-profile point of disagreement between Hollywood studios and unions. Both the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA have pushed to ensure that members are protected from studio use of AI. Now, in response, the studios have tried to discount the risk that automation will replace actors by pointing to proposals that would, for example, require that actors consent to automated uses of their likenesses. However, reports in last week's New York Times and Los Angeles Times highlight how automation is already present in the movie and television industry. The Times reported on existing technology that could let studios replace actors. The 2016 movie Rogue One included the likeness of Peter Cushing, an actor who died in 1994 by using motion capture and digital rendition of Cushing's face. One visual effects company said in a statement that existing technology lets it create performances of historical figures based on existing footage. Many studios use automation to fill out extras and crowd scenes. As the Times explains, although it may currently be too expensive to completely replace actors, existing technology can reduce studios' need for actors, possibly writers. Although studio proposals would require actor consent in practice, only high-profile stars would be able to effectively negotiate approved uses of their likeness. Meanwhile, The L.A. Times explored a recent hiring surge among Hollywood studios looking for just that, automation workers. In its reporting, the Times found that Netflix has more than a dozen active LinkedIn job postings targeting workers with AI expertise. One listing that AI helps Netflix create great content. Other studios have posted such positions as AI prompt animator. Duncan Crabtree Ireland, who is SAG-AFTRA's National Executive Director and Chief Negotiator, said the job listings appear to point to a broader strategy to set up a post-strike dynamic around AI rather than a direct attempt to break the ongoing strikes. This is amazing what's going on. It's scary. I heard a story on NPR recently where a young lady was taken... They brought her into a van. This was a movie production van. And they told her, well, pose here, turn 90 degrees, walk this way, smile, frown, 
do all these different things that they captured on video, on artificial intelligence. So basically, and when she was done, she spent about an hour or two in that van. They were done with her. They were done with her. And they could use her as much as, as, much as they want. One more here. Washington State is putting Amazon on trial for worker injuries, especially ergonomic injuries at three of the retail giants' warehouses in Sumner, Kent, and DuPont, Washington. Now, technically, the trial is a hearing by the State Board of Industrial Insurance Appeals as the company is appealing some $49,000 in fines the Washington Department of Labor and Industries levied for rampant job safety and health violations at the warehouses. Now get this. Amazon's injury rates are close to double those in the private sector and as a whole. And apparently conditions at the three Amazon warehouses in Washington are even worse, according to experts and workers testifying at the hearings in Seattle and Tacoma. The trial began July 25th and is scheduled to wrap up probably this week. They're so bad, Amazon warehouse workers told inspectors that pushing through pain was the norm, with some 40% saying they experienced it in the previous seven days. Of those, two-thirds said they had to take medication to ease the symptoms. The Washington State trial is also notable because Amazon's lousy national safety record in combating the uh, coronavirus in ergonomic injuries and other hazards. Many job tasks expose workers to high levels of biomechanical factors known to increase the risk of musculoskeletal disorders and conditions. They go downhill from there. We also need to note that productivity measurements such as time off task penalize workers and discourages them from taking breaks that could help them recover from the high pace of work and other exposures. The penalties applied when not meeting productivity demands can also increase stress associated with an increased risk of musculoskeletal injuries. Turns out that monthly safety meeting minutes at Kent show Amazon bosses knew what was going on. The response was to train workers in body mechanics, commonly known as lifting techniques, such as lift your legs and not with your back. That was their response to the workers getting injured. But bottom line is, we'll see what happens with this trial. Actually, not a trial, but uh, a inquiry into what's going on at Amazon warehouses in the state of Washington. Well, that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to check in with the American Federation of Government Employees and Ask me in Connecticut. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.